Well, thanks, Bill, for joining us, man. It's a lot of fun to think back that it's been 25 years <laughs> since I first moved to Salt Lake City and got the beat covering University of Utah men's basketball at the Salt Lake Tribune. I did it for 10 years. It was an awesome time. Now, you had already been broadcasting Ute basketball for about 25 years when yeah. I came aboard, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you continued on for what? Another 15, another 20? Uh, 37 total. 37 years. Wow. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, let's... No, it was fun. It was, yeah. I had them fooled for a long time. So, <laughs> Well, that's pretty good that you went 37 years and now you're retired and doing your thing with your grandkids. I know your, your one son and your, your grandkids live over by me and my wife had uh, a lot of your grandkids at school. Oh, so, yeah. So she gives yeah. them the highest recommendation. Yeah, I get uh, – there's a lot of former guys connected with me that are teachers now at Brighton. One of them is Johnny Noble. Mm -hmm. John Noble's son is teaching at Brighton. He uh, he w had a scholarship to ASU yeah. <laughs> for baseball and then played in the minors for a while. And Ball's son, the old referee and official, he teaches at, uh, at Brighton as well. Uh -huh. So Br Braden, my grandson, always says I'm in such and such a class. And then Jimmis. Jim Jimmis. Uh, oh, yeah, the old basketball coach? Yeah, we, I, you do remember Jim. Yeah. <laughs> he was a great BYU basketball player mm -hmm. out of the Bingham Canyon area and uh, then ended up at Hillcrest and was a great coach at Hillcrest. But uh, Jim does some substitute teaching there. So I get notes all the time from all these guys. Keeps me connected. Well, let's start. Uh, the other day, they had the other weekend, they had a 20-year reunion. It's amazing to think that it's been 20 years since the University of Utah went to the Final Four. And I've got, I've got three decades in this business myself, and I've done a lot of different things. I covered, when I was in California, I covered Michael Jordan's first NBA title, the first of six that he got because I was working for a newspaper back there, down there. And I covered uh, Rose Bowls. I've covered the Utes and the Fiesta, the Utes and the Sugar. And I have to say, that Final Four, that just that week in San Antonio, was the most fun that I've ever had doing anything. Oh, there's no question that uh, you can see all the Final Fours you want on television. You can even buy a ticket and be there. But if you're involved with a team... yeah then you really get an experience with the Final Four. And San Antonio was just absolutely amazing. Wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Except we had a coach who was a little difficult to operate with. <laughs> <laughs> and, and instead of my being able to spend time with my wife who accompanied me and see the sights in San Antonio and go to all the events and the alumni things and the food and the barbecues, everything right. else, I followed him around trying to get the pregame taped. And it took like six or seven or eight hours before he deigned to say, okay, we can sit down in the corner here. And, or you can do it while I'm working the Stairmaster. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. The old Stairmaster or treadmill. I've got a few stories with him. Did a lot of interviews while he was huffing and puffing. Absolutely. Let's talk about the guys on the team. You know, Majerus, and I covered him for 10 years, and I think pretty much everybody in, those, in this community knows he and I had our – battles and struggles and all, all i do think deep down he respected me uh, for what i did i think he respected talent but he was uh, he was just a little bit less uh able to to express himself with a local level everything was kind of orchestrated with rick rick was a great orchestrator and manipulator that's why he was a great coach uh -huh. i mean when he set up a game plan man 
it was a game plan. And if you give him time enough, he's going to beat you. Yeah. I always felt that, and still to this day, that just in sheer intelligence, the ability to recall and remember and cite and absorb and comprehend was, he was second to none. Well, number one, he had a photographic memory. Right. I mean, he could remember everything. Yes. And and he had a, he had a tremendous sense of sympathy as well. When I was sick, when I had uh, uh, Legionnaire's disease and was in the hospital, the first guy to come in was, was Rick Majerus. Uh, my wife had said, no, we didn't tell anybody that I was ill. And we didn't, uh, she said, nobody comes but family. Nobody was tied off. So when the nurse comes in and says, your brother is out there wants to see. <laughs> I said, well, what does my brother look like? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm intubated, so I had to write it. What does my brother look like? And she said, he's big, fat, and bald. <laughs> I said, that's my coach. Let him come in. So, and, and I couldn't talk, which is normal, because I didn't do much talking around Rick. He did most of the talking. But I was innovated, so I just sat and listened to him. But we were playing in the Salt Palace, I believe, or in, in this event, for the first uh, conference championship in a neutral site in Salt Lake City was here. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I missed the whole thing. I was in the hospital. And he came in and told me everything that happened and just absolutely laid it all on the yeah. line. The mistakes that he made and how we won and how we lost. It was, it was marvelous. He was second to none in that regard. I learned early on after games he'd recite plays, and then I in my mind would try to picture them and – as I was trying to recall just a specific box out that didn't happen, that was his big deal. If you didn't box yep. out, particularly on a free throw, if you didn't box out, I mean, you knew he would go to town on that. And I would try to recall it in my mind. And while I was recalling it, he would move on to about six or seven other plays. So I knew, I learned that, well, don't question him because he's going to recite it exactly as it happened. Just stay with him and he'll take you through the progression of the game because he's going to be right. And instead of trying to recall it in my mind, just go with it so I could keep up with him as he went through all the plays of the game that he thought were significant that he wanted to talk about after a game. And so probably halfway through my first year, I realized, man, this guy, he's got everything down as if he's got a screen and a projector and he's watching it <laughs> as he's reciting it. So don't go back and try to recall it. Just take it for granted that he's got it and just go with him and take what he says as truth because he understood and he recalled everything as literally if it was right there being played out in his eyes as he was speaking. It was amazing. You try to do a coach's show with him. You ask one question and that's the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that I've ever been around... For better or worse, somebody like Rick Majerus. No, I have. He's, he's uh, without question, the best coach I ever worked with. And I've worked with a heck of a lot of coaches, but he certainly was a different kind of human being. Uh, was not an admirable human being that you would use as, as, a, uh, as a role model for members of your family growing up, you know, to be like coach. Right. <laughs> Archibald, I would. Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly. Archibald was a yeah. superhuman guy. I knew him a little bit. Yeah. And maybe. The worst bench coach I ever worked with, but he was just a marvelous human being. Yeah. I think that with Rick, 
part of the problem with him was his genius mind. I, I, I think that we're all blessed with certain talents, and this is my own cheap uh, psychoanalysis, is that he was so brilliant that that caused him to not develop social skills the way most people would. And so he would come up a little short in that area, interaction with people, because he was just so intelligent. Well, that's, that's an interesting observation, interesting analysis. Uh, he had a soft spot. He did. Because, I mean, he visited more kids in the hospital. Yeah. And when we were playing over in the Air Force Academy, some kid that he had met in the hospital, he invited to the game because he lived in that area. And he always had somebody that he was doing something good for. Uh, I know when I was in the hospital, he sent me a bag, a uh, basket of fruit and, and candy and, and uh, cookies. But being intubated, I couldn't, I couldn't eat them. Uh-huh. And then when he visited me, he ate all the candy and all the cookies. <laughs> <laughs> the food stories. <laughs> he left the fruit for me. <laughs> that was just legendary. I always found he was easier to talk to in the off-season because he put such enormous yes. pressure on himself yes. Yes. during the season. And one time I, I called him. He it was an NCAA uh, the day after the NCAA selection, so it's on a sun, uh, Monday. Sunday it comes out, and he wasn't available. He was doing some national stuff, but he told me, and, and Mike Sorensen was a longtime uh, writer for the Desert News. He still works there, but he and I were the two beat guys for most of the time. And so he gave information through his sports information director. Just have him call me on Monday, and I'll talk to him, right? So I call him. He calls me back at about noon and on Monday, and he's all agitated. And and you could, you could hear it. He's just so agitated. I said, and he's barking at me. And I said, what's, what's wrong, man? What's going on? You know, you got a good seed. You're set up for a good run. One, he always had good runs in the tournament. And he said, well, the, his book came out. And they had a book signing up at the, on campus somewhere. And he thought that he would be up there for about 15 minutes, sign a few books, and be on his way. <laughs> well, the line was thousands. And he had to be there way longer. And he was all agitated because it took time away from preparation. Now, I don't know that he ever lost a first-round game, but it took time away, and he was so on edge because so many people came to get his signature on his book, and he didn't anticipate that. And so it was during the season, and he was so volatile talking to me. And then I don't remember if it was the same season or another season, but it was the off-season. It was like April or May, and I was working in the office at the Tribune down on Main Street. They don't even have the building there, and the building's there, but the office isn't there. They moved over the gateway. And I called, and usually you would call, and he'd call you back. He always would call you back, without question, he'd call you back. So he calls me back, and I pick up the phone. Uh, Pat? Yeah. Rick Majerus, you need to get home right now. Like, what are you talking about? Your wife, she's got problems. You need to be home. You need to leave that office, and you need to drive home right now. Well, unbeknownst to me, somebody was crank calling my wife in late afternoon, and he, in the middle of the crank calls or towards the end, he called and she picked it up like, stop calling oh, me, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so she told him because he says, what's the matter? She told him what the problem was. And then he said, I'll get him home right then. So he calls me, <laughs> says, I'm not talking to you. You need to go home right now. And <laughs> which is the way he was. You know, he had, a, and it was the off season, so all of a sudden he's concerned about my wife. 
Jeez. And that's just well, he had yeah, he had that that's side. That's the way he was. He was really sensitive on that side. And if you were ill and I was ill that time, I, I saw a side of him I'd never seen before. And he had the same thing with. I think that's what bonded him with Huntsman. Sure. The same thing with Huntsman. That was a unique friendship, and it was a really a really strong friendship uh, with he and Huntsman. We were in. I don't know where we were. I was I was going to say Laramie, but I don't think it was because he couldn't have landed the plane on that, mm-hmm. on that landing strip. But I usually had two phones with me. One of them I hook up my equipment with, and the other was a standby in an emergency in case I had trouble. So after the game, he lost. He came over and he said, uh, "He said, can I use your phone?" I said, "Yes, go ahead." So he dialed, and I'm just breaking down equipment, getting ready for the uh, the JJ show that followed afterwards. And he said, "Hi, is Rick? Is John there?" In China, what's the number? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm listening to this one side. Okay, so he hangs it up. (laughs) He doesn't ask me if he can call long distance on my phone. So he calls. John, Rick, I need a plane. Can you pick us up? I said, uh, I I have to. I said, can you pick the team? And and my what? Your plane is there (laughs) in China. (laughs) Well, how about the other one? (laughs) And he said, Oh, the pilots are there. <laughs> so then he slammed, he says, thank you. He slammed the phone down and just took off. But that's the kind of relationship that he had with John Huntsman. Yeah, how did that start? I, I just, well, John was, he invited John to come to watch a game, or no more, watch a practice. And he had Majin, you know, who, uh, who really had a fantastic body and was the greatest player in China at the yeah, time. Sure. And came from junior college to the University of Utah. And Ma, and Ma was a fantastic player, but he didn't like to play skin on skin. He didn't, he didn't like to bang with anybody, set picks or anything else. And Rick didn't particularly care for this. But anyway, he, he invited John to come watch. And, and he, had given, he had given a full scholarship to another player who played at Skyline High School who spoke Mandarin. He was off of his LDS mission. Ryan Hunt. So he was Hunt. So he was the uh, interpreter. Ryan was the interpreter for Rick. So uh, Ryan's out there playing point uh, part of the time in practice. So after it's all over, he goes to Huntsman. He said, okay, who was my best player out there? And he said, that little Hunt kid. (laughs) 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 I think that started it off. (laughs) Uh, It was just absolutely amazing. I happened to be there when he told him that, and Rick just couldn't. (laughs) He couldn't fathom how he picked out a. A walk-on as yeah. his best player. I mean, that was a that was a fascinating relationship because obviously John Huntsman just passed here recently, and Rick has been gone for I don't know five or six years now. Uh-huh. Uh, but you know, you thought that here is this somewhat crude, uh, profane coach and John Huntsman, who was not only a business leader and a philanthropic leader, but he was a he was a religious leader, and you would think that those two wouldn't necessarily fit together. Opposites attract. It, it's like an Orrin Hatch and, and Ted Kennedy type of thing, you know what I mean? That yeah, they he, had that thing going on. But yet, that was probably, uh, when it was said and done, maybe his strongest relationship of anybody in Utah? Yep. Yep. Uh, with Spence Eccles a little bit mm-hmm. and with uh, Layden again. Right. When he was uh, called back from the Air Force game, or after the Air Force game, and uh, he was going to be fired by Chris Hill. Uh, he called Huntsman, Spence, and Layden to be with him to argue for his job and everything else. That's that, they, they were his, his guys. And uh, his, his, 
bond with Huntsman was just strong as can be. I remember when Huntsman put on a birthday party for him at the Huntsman sure. thing. And coming up in the elevator was a surprise thing. They were coming up from the, the uh, subterranean garage and coming up to the floor. They discussed religion. <laughs> and they were still discussing it when the doors opened and everybody said, happy birthday. They were in a very serious philosophical religious discussion. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all, knowing what I know of him and how the mind was always working. He was always fascinated by everything. Yep. He had he had that incredible mind. But he would quote from a book during yeah. the coaches' shows, everything else, that did, the river runs through and everything else, bring out a line that was stuck in his memory. Right. And, and then he advocated, of course, his players take advantage of reading and going to movies and plays and everything else wherever he could. Bill, during your... Almost 40 years, you came across some interesting players in football and in basketball. Who are some that stood out to you? Oh, boy. <laughs> a lot of them. There. This reunion that just happened with the 98 team, it was like old friends, you know, coming back. Right. It was really close to almost everybody on that team. But to begin with, uh, my first team was uh, Kenny Gardner and Mike Newland. Mike Nolan, we all remember well. And Kenny Gardner, was, yeah. We just left. Our, we did the final game in Einer Nielsen Fieldhouse. Then the next year, the first game in the special events, now the John M. Huntsman Center. And uh, both of them have become fast friends throughout life. And Michael was really an intriguing human being. He, uh, he again, was a very brilliant, very bright guy and uh, had uh, a cleft palate that he, we had fixed while he was at the University of Utah, which had set him back a little bit socially. And, uh, and then to see him blossom and come out as, as not only a great athlete and a Rhodes Scholar candidate, he was very, very close. Kenny the same way. Kenny was ever effusive about everything that was going on. And he kind of disturbed some people because he came on pretty strong at the same time. The JJs, Jonas and Judkins, just absolutely fantastic friends and had some great experiences with them. The game with Kentucky to open Rupp Arena and they're playing. And, uh, of course, uh, Goo Givens was a big star, and Rick Roby for yeah. Kentucky. Right. And uh, uh, J- uh, Judkins just outplayed Goo Givens all the way through. And then Jonas, slow, white guy, <laughs> couldn't jump, had a brilliant mind. He just could analyze the field. Uh, they put together a fantastic game, and that was the last time we beat <laughs> Kentucky. <laughs> and we did in their arena. Handed them their first loss right. in Rupp Arena. I remember hearing about that. Uh, in football, we had uh, the Steve Marshall and Steve Marlowe, two kids from Skyline that I covered all the way through Skyline, and they went on to become coaches at, uh, at uh, Skyline, back to their alma mater. And Steve Marshall might have been, uh, been the best all-around football player that we had. Uh, he was a quarterback in high school and then was made uh, strong safety. Uh, by Bill Meek, and when Brownie Van Gelder went down, uh, he was the he, he wasn't really the backup quarterback, but against Colorado State, he was the quarterback and became the national back of the year or the month because of what he did, like seven touchdowns, yeah. responsible for or scored himself. And uh, and Marlowe is uh, was athletic director finally at the end at Skyline High School. He too is retired. Uh, Odom was on that first team as well, and Steve Odom was the fastest player I'd ever seen. I thought that uh, 
uh, we had a race. There was a guy from UTEP who ran, who was their track coach. Uh, he was later, I think, run out because he brought a lot of Nambians and a few foreigners in to run the track program. But he tried to start an international track program called the ITA. And he had a uh, King of the Hill 100-yard dash that was the big event. And uh, Golden Richards was in it. Odom was in it. Uh, Jackson from the Rams was in it. The guy from the uh, uh, Dallas Cowboys who was the fastest man. Oh, Bob Hayes. Uh, Bob Hayes was in it. They were all in it. Odom wins it. Really? <laughs> Manny, Hay- uh, Manny Hendricks. What a fantastic story coming out of South Mountain. Yeah. Down in Arizona, in Phoenix. Phoenix. Yeah. I wanted to do a story on him in South Mountain, and so I was going to use the station down there to shoot it for me and and they said, well, we can't go in there with a marked car. Right. Oh, I remember the area well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Manny comes from that, and he's just done a glorious job at the University of Utah. Yeah, went on to play just professional fantastic. football. But the Van Horns and the Bogats. You know, Bogut would never have been the first player picked in the NBA draft had not Giacoletti talked Mark Jackson into coming back to school because Rick kind of ran Mark out. Yeah. And I, I thought if anybody could have, could handle Rick, it would be Mark Jackson because he was one of the most mature kids I'd ever – but he just said, to heck with it. It's not worth it. So he just left. Right. And then Giacoletti comes in, and he talks him to come back. And because of that, Mark Jackson made Bogut the number one draft pick. Right. I think that Ray went down to Australia a couple times and got, got – Oh, he talked him back, back in, but he brought a point guard in that would make him a star. Right. And uh, Alex Smith, that same – that same year yeah. when he was number one draft pick in, in the NFL. Uh, they've all been close people. But to pick them out, it's, those were always the ones I started with. Brian Rowley. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian Rowley and Frank Dolce the com- and, and uh, Sharif Shah. <laughs> Sharif Shah was just a, a pleasure to work with all time. He's just a marvelous human being. He really is. Yeah, he's assistant coach now, and he's just marvelous they guy. Let, they let you talk to him like maybe twice a season, and, and I make sure that I'm there because he he has a perspective on life. Having been uh, he he he, worked, he went to Dorsey, and when I lived down there, I covered Dorsey. He was one of my schools, so I'm familiar with his area of where he grew up. And my wife taught at Washington, which was in the same league as as Dorsey, right down there. And so I get where he's coming from, and the love that he has for his quote boys, as he calls them is really remarkable. I mean, it was a great hire by Kyle in terms of being able to get the point across and, and not sympathize, but empathize with uh, some of these kids that come out of some backgrounds and come up to the University of Utah. Shreve Shaw's been there. Great hire by me. I made him our field reporter. Yeah, I know you did, yeah. Because he just he analyzed right. The thing is, on Labor Day, they were out practicing, and I did an interview with him, and he started a, a labor movement saying, this is Labor Day, we shouldn't be laboring. And, <laughs> and McBride came over and said, what are you shouting about? And he, oh, uh, nothing, Coach, nothing at all. <laughs> but he was standing on a platform espousing a, a union. We have to collectively bond together and and not work on labor day it was but he really put on a show all the time he was he was a great human being and he's a great coach what do you think that that 1998 team had just lost van horn and he to me van horn i'm biased but he was the best youth of all time well he was the best clutch player you ever saw in your life yeah those winning shots the smu game yeah 
Yeah. You know, with SMU, New Mexico, back to back. Yeah, I'll tell you a quick story. His senior year, we're in Vegas at the conference tournament, and they're just playing like crap against SMU. And he taps it. Andre throws it in, and he throws it up, and he taps it in. And then the next night, and Majerus was furious after that night, after the SMU win. But then the next night, that ball's bouncing around. And Keith gets it, volleyballs it to himself, squares up, and nails the thing to beat a really good New Mexico team, yes. which had at least two NBA guys, Kenny Thomas and Charles Smith. Both of those cats played in the NBA. And so then in the final, they go up against uh, Billy Tubbs' track team in TCU, <laughs> and he rolls out like 37, something like that, right? I mean, it's just three nights of just awesome and then we go back, and the NBA draft was in Charlotte that year, and the paper sends me back. Van Horn goes Duncan one, and then Keith two. And I can remember they do a, the day before the draft, they do a breakout with like the 10 guys who were expected to be in the top 10, and they each are sitting at their own table. And at that point, I'd ask Keith every question that I could possibly ask over four years. So I was just observing. And one of the guys asked him, do you think you did enough in your college career to be, it was understood he was going to go second, to go second. And I said, right then, I said, he did enough on that weekend in Vegas, <laughs> just those three games, to be the one or two pick. Just those three games alone in Vegas when they won that thing. I mean, he really was sensational. Well, you, you take the team that we just uh, had a reunion with, the 98 team, uh, Andre Miller. Right. The first, uh, the second, actually, you know, Prop 48 uh, player who didn't qualify and had to c come in on his own his yeah. freshman year and could not practice with the team or anything else and then get his grades up and so he could be, his could pass the admission. Uh, Walter Watts was the first Prop 48 to come in, and Walter was just a phenomenal. I loved Walter, too, the same guy. But Andre Miller... And the way they meshed together with Doliak. Doliak used to come down like a thundering herd of elephants, you know, down the floor. And they had didn't have fluidity. They weren't highly recruited. And uh, as a result, they just came together. Hano Metala the same way. And then Alex, St. Alex, the only, <laughs> <laughs> the only player that Rick never, never, never gave a harsh statement to at all, and earned the name by uh, all of his teammates of St. Sure St. Alex. Now but he assistant was jazz coach. Yeah, you know, he and Fergus were the only two guys that ever carried my bags. You know, I carried a lot of equipment on road trips, right? Along with a set of golf clubs, so <laughs> it was difficult with all the broadcast equipment. But those the only on the whole time in the forty years, those are the two guys that offered to help carry my equipment to my room when we checked in on the road. And then when we come back from a road trip, the managers had all this wash to, to get out of the, the vans and down into the laundry room. Alex helped them take it out. That's the kind of guy he was. Yeah. And he was the kind of player that made everybody else better. With Alex in the mix, you became a better five with him out there. And he didn't seem to do that much, but he did bring all four players together in a team. Yeah, I think it was interesting with Alex. When Keith was a senior, Alex was uh, finishing up his mission, so he wasn't able to be there. I think if Alex had been there uh, Keith's senior year, I think they would have gone to the Final Four and not lost to Kentucky Good. in the regional final up there in San Jose. Well, then Alex comes back the next year and they go to the Final Four. Yep. 
mean, they lose Keith, but they gain Alex. <laughs> yes, that's that was right. about the only difference. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. he wasn't the kind of player, wasn't that star no, no. player that Keith was. Drew Hansen was the other one in the starting five. Right. Here's a young kid out of Tooele High School who led the state of Utah in scoring. And he comes to the University of Utah, recruited by a lot of people because, but from Tooele, but he, because he was a great scorer. Mm-hmm. Rick makes him into the defensive stopper on yeah. the team. 6'5", agile. the kid had a bright, bright mind. He had oh, basketball intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. And as a result, he became the defensive stopper. When you put all those ingredients together, it was uh, it was a team that went to the Final Four. Led almost all the way from the start of the game up until about 10 minutes to mm-hmm. go. And then Andre kind of ran out of gas. And he had to have Jordy McTavish to get a little help. Jordy turns the ball over a couple times. And and the rest is history. Yeah. It, uh, I, I can recall that. I, I picked him to go to the regional final that year. But I picked him to lose to Arizona. Then I make my Final Four reservation. But I make it to come home on Sunday because I thought they'd lose to Carolina. Because <laughs> <Right? laughs> uh, paper said, if they lose, you got to come home. So I said, all right. I don't think with Vince Carter and Antoine Jamison, I don't think that they're going to win that game. I thought they were going to lose. Well, they win that game. And then I'm thinking, well, they're going to win the title. And uh, for 30-some minutes, I was dead on. I remember calling my sister at halftime. She says, because I'm sitting courtside, she said, they're going to win the title, man. They're going to they're gonna win this whole thing. And I thought, I said, yeah, they are, because I think they were up by 10 at halftime, uh-huh. something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, they were. And I thought, they've got this thing. They've got it, man. They are going to win the college basketball title. This is going to be amazing. And then, of course, they came up a little short. Well, everybody just rode Andre. I mean, yeah. from that first Arizona game when they had Bibby and Simons, the two best point guards from the year before that won the national championship. Right. And Rick comes up with his game plan. Yeah. Huh? Was it triangle and two? Triangle and two. Yeah. And then Andre comes up with a triple-double. He double, had a triple-double, yeah. Triple-double against Down in those. Anaheim, yeah. yeah. Just yeah. absolutely amazing. Dominated. Ab- totally dominated. <laughs> totally dominated, yeah. It was really stunning. You know, the story goes that uh, that when he was floating around in in the in his first years in the NBA, the Jazz Stockton had just left, and that he they were looking to bring him to Salt Lake City, and Rick told him not to come. Was that because you'll play in Stockton's shadow for the rest of your life, go out and make your name because you're that good, and so we didn't get Andre here. And it was I, it's something I really. I'm angry about for Rick because because Andre was was so fun to watch yeah, and what a what a personality what a humble soft spoken kid that can just become a, a a demon on the course right yeah 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 the way he I don't think there's anybody faster even though he wasn't a fast player but when he was dribbling the ball he was like unstoppable and he would be coming down and his decision making he had those long arms and he could hang in the air. I remember he hit the game winner in Tulsa, of all places. We were there, and it was a tight game, and Tulsa had a good team that year. And Andre just got in the lane, and it seemed like he would hang there forever, and guys would jump, and then they'd fall down by the wayside, and then Andre, with his long arms, would just hit that little shot inside the free-throw line, and and they won that ball game. And I remember Jarrah saying, man, I just feel like I'm on top of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he he was very difficult after the Final Four appearance. Because he was on top of the world. Yeah. Oh, I can tell you a few stories. <laughs> he felt like he was on top of yeah, the world. Yeah. Somebody told me in the athletic administration that, that was the worst thing that could happen because at that point, uh, things kind of got out of control. And and typical of Majerus, 
things don't usually didn't usually end well. It kind of crashes rather than come to a natural conclusion. He just kind of he doesn't end it well. Well, we had a lot of uh, sub stories too in that uh, final four. In San Antonio, the uh, the Kentucky player who accused Britton Johnson of using the N-word, and Britton is just a little sophomore LDS a kid. Or, He's a freshman. freshman. Yeah. LDS kid, and who comes right behind him like, like a giant yeah. elephant or a big gorilla was Rick. Yeah, yeah. Rick stood behind his guy all the way through. It was absolutely amazing. And then when the Kentucky kid backed down and said he made it up. Yeah, no. I mean, everybody was vindicated, but I saw Rick. I saw that simpatico. I saw that fierceness he had for his players. Yeah. And the reason I think – I think he got burned in Milwaukee before he ever came here, maybe in Ball State, got burned by the media. I really think he did. And that 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 put the wall up, that he didn't want the media. He wouldn't let me ride on the team bus with, with the team. Didn't want me associated with the players, talking to them, you know, off the court or off the game or anything else. Uh, he did eventually – through, through the course of our relationship at the end, he did, called me a throwback to the old-time broadcasters. I think I helped you because he hated me so much that <laughs> you're, you elevated in his eyes. But at the start, man, we were in the same boat. Yeah, we were. I, all I can recall, I can recall him making you stand outside in the rain at San Jose. Yeah. Uh, you wanted to go in, and he said, no, I'm thinking, the guy's dressed in red, man. He's one of your own. At least I get me. I'm not one of your own. But you were, was one, were one of his own. It so. was a weird relationship. But I knew how to interview him after the first year, second year. I could cut him off from this long, yeah, yeah, yeah. single-sentence paragraph, you know. <laughs> I could cut him off. And I could make tears well in his eyes just by bringing up his dad because that uh, the association he had with his father. And his language, I just say, well, he's, he talks like a, a teamster because his dad was the head of the Teamsters right, Union. Right. But he just his vocabulary is, is teamster. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he inherited the first team, there must have been probably five RMs on that team. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it was difficult for them to handle <laughs> the language, first of all. And then speaking of book signing and standing in line and the people that showed up, I'll tell you this last week with that 98 team, they didn't realize they're going to have that. For an hour and a half, they were standing up signing autographs, and they were the line was all the way around the uh, Huntsman Center. Was it? Uh, they just couldn't believe there that many people show up after 20 years. Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. Boy. Well, that was, a, that was a, a very a team that bonded with the community very well. All right, stay with us. We will come back for the final segment. Well, Bill, we're going to wrap up our final segment, and I want to look at someone who I view you as an historian of University of Utah Athletic Department. And I know you you did a thing, uh, I probably still do on the radio, on, on broadcast for no, football. No, last year was my last. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm I fully used... retired. All right, good for you. Well, <laughs> you deserve it. Uh, but just can you put in a synopsis where University of Utah Athletics were. I mean, they've always been a basketball school, but football, they had their struggles. And now look at where they are in the Pac-12. Is that something that you would have thought that this where we would be where we are now? They were always a good nickel and dime team. You know, they were always a good team, but they didn't have the finances, and nor did they raise the money for the finances. I knew they could exist as one of the top teams in the nation in basketball because it had happened right. back from 1944 with Farron and yeah. all the Wapmasaka and the Gardeners and everything else. But I never really thought football 
because of the tremendous expense that it takes and the and the tremendous amount of recruiting you have to get the kind of athletes. In basketball, you can win with two guys. Right. In football, you got to have you know you they each one is independent uh, by himself, but he is dependent on the guy next to him. And without that guy next to him being as good as he is, you yeah you're finished. As a result, I thought football might always lag behind that it wouldn't really really reach the goal reach the level that it has today. But we had some special coaches that that got in there. And uh, Fossil really started a little bit offensively, getting the crowd excited and everything else. Put all of his best players on offense, and defense was left to shift for itself. So you had to beat a team by 50 points because you you had to score that much. And then I think McBride, with his down-home attitude and appeal and his family relationship with players and everything else, because that's what he was all about – I remember when when that when when that first team Wayne Howard's first team came and he was the offensive line coach for that first staff that came in. I went and did a feature with him with a sound camera, which was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I I should have used my silent K100 to shoot it because I had to bleep every other word. I never <laughs> I never heard language like that. And even even today with the coaches shows with McBride, uh, every once in a while it would pop up because it was just <laughs> it was just out. In fact, uh, I was under orders really when Rick was involved with the tape coaches shows the tape pregame shows, to make sure that they were palatable to the audience. And it's the first time I ever had to take two tape machines because I had to edit. Because there wasn't always, there was a set when, when, when the real guy would come out and you didn't want the audience to hear that kind of language, so you had to edit it. And we did that. But uh, I never expected the, the football to grow like it has. And it's a tribute to all those coaches in line but Mac was in the middle there, and right. and Mac really got everything everything going. And of course, the urban thing just just absolutely kicked it into gear. And that uh, when I retired from football with the University of Utah, two thousand five, January Fiesta Bowl, BCS Busters, that I felt was the was really the pinnacle that we had just now broken through. Uh-huh. The glass ceiling was shattered. Yeah. Uh, I always felt that uh, Utah and BYU would get into the the Pac-8 because I thought they had two weak teams, Washington State and Oregon State, and they would be dropped in and join in with with Idaho and the rest of them. And Utah and BYU would replace those two because I thought they were competent enough with their uh, with their strength of team and scheduling and everything else they could compete in the in the Pac-12. But it didn't happen that way, and unfortunately BYU was left out. And because of being left out, they felt they had to do something, and so they became independent. And Utah's entrance into the uh, Pac-12 has just absolutely increased the quality and the caliber of recruiting. And now you got when you put a second team in, they're almost as good as that first first team, which wasn't the case before. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, the you'd depth, substitute yeah. a guy in for a defensive tackle, and that guy was half as good as the guy that came out. Right. Uh, as a result, now we. We really are are on the road to uh, to really establishing the fact that we have a fantastic college football, basketball, gymnastics, softball, baseball, swimming program at the University of Utah. The athletic department has really arrived, mainly because of the infusion of the money that comes from the Pac-12 membership. 
Yeah, it's pretty much a dream come true. I know for me as a Pac-10 guy, an ASU guy, to ha- I would have loved to have both schools get in, but I'll take one. I didn't care which one it was. I preferred both of them so we'd have the I thought it would rivalries. happen. I thought those yeah. two would, would, would get in. It would have been cool to have everybody within oh, the state. What's cool is to have that last game of the season yeah. against your rival. Yeah, when, right, when which everybody, everybody else does. What everybody else is doing. Yeah. I miss that. Right. It's no, no, no question. They'll play this year at the end of the season, but I don't know how many times, probably not too many times, going forward. Uh, so you gave McBride who I believe is the godfather of the modern-day Utah football program. He's the one who established it. He got the roots planted in the ground and and built it from the ground up. What was it like during that brief time that we had Urban Meyer here from your perspective? It was absolutely heaven. <laughs> he, was, he was the greatest merchandiser of the program. That's what he did. Uh-huh. He sold the program. Yeah. And his uh, wife. <laughs> and his wife, a tremendous combination. Yeah. Uh, he was, he was uh, up front uh, with me, uh, had no problems. There was, it was nothing but a glory road with Urban. Plus, he was a heck of a football coach. But he had that business side that was different than all the other coaches. Mac didn't have it. Right. But he had it. One of Mac's geniuses is that he hired Kyle. You know, Kyle was let go at Idaho State. Right. And Fred said, you know, can you help him out? So he did. And then the the funny thing is when Urban came, Kyle and uh, and, – his buddy were leaving, going to leave and join the NFL. They were looking for jobs in the NFL. And the press conference we had for Urban, his wife came up to me. And she obviously, very astute, Big she time. obviously yeah. had read the press guide <laughs> and the pictures because she knew who I was when she stepped up. Yeah. And she said, uh, I'd like to ask you a question. She says, uh, uh, do you know what Kyle Whittingham is going to do? And I said, yeah, I know what he's going to do. He's, he's, he's planning right now of looking for a job in the NFL. No. Urban wants him. Mm-hmm. He, Urban wants him. He saw that game against uh, Michigan, and he saw how that defense played against Michigan, and that was one of the main reasons he took this job because this guy is here. Now, normally, the new guy coming in doesn't keep the defensive or offensive coordinators, right. but he wanted Kyle in the mix. That was part of the job. So she then, of course – unbeknownst to me, but she went right to Urban, and Urban went right to Kyle, and those ideas of leaving were, were gone. He and Gary were on their way. They Both of them thought they to the would NFL. have to go somewhere else, yeah. Yeah. So that was the, that was the track, and, and Urban was astute enough to realize what he had in Kyle, and Mac was nice enough to, let, to have Fred, to help Fred bring his kid into the program. Yeah. That's what I thought. I thought that of all the things that Urban did, keeping Kyle was the smartest. Oh, marrying Shelley was the smarter because uh, that was more long term. Because <laughs> th- th- was, those two were unbelievable. When she came up to me. I thought, wow, this is the first wife who is ever who ever knows who. Right. I, she, I guess she knew everybody in the athletic department from their pictures in the press guy and yeah. everything else. She'd studied it, but that was the one thing she wanted to find out. And boy, they put a stop to any thoughts of his leaving at all. Right, and that was a genius move because it allowed him to have his defense intact of someone who clearly knew, and then it bought Chris Hill time because you normally don't, when you fire a coach, you normally then don't promote one of his coordinators, so it allowed 
Kyle to stay on the job. And then two years later, when Urban takes the Florida job, the program's in a much better situation. So it's only natural at that point, then you promote Kyle. And I, I really think for the sake of University of Utah, it, it, you have to have stability. This is a different community. I don't think you can just open up the job to anyone. No, it doesn't work that way. It has to be somebody who's got an idea of what we're about and knows how to do it. I'll tell you a story, which which, (laughs) sounds apocryphal. (laughs) But uh, the night Kyle's going to make the decision, because BYU is wooing him heavily. Big time, yep. Uh, They've had the president down the hut and everything else. And plus his family and his wife's family are BYU people. Right. So the night he's going to make the decision, I call his home to talk to him, and uh, his son answers, and he says, he's not here. He's at uh, mom's house. And I, and I said, and he's got the brothers, yeah, and he's got all of her, yeah, he's got everybody there. So what happened, allegedly, the story that I heard, and it's later verified, but the story I heard is that uh, both sides are pushing, but they're really pushing BYU. Right. The whole That whole room is pushing BYU. And finally, he gets a call from Chris, and Chris makes him an offer like no offer has ever been made before. <laughs> and he's, he's amazed, and he sets the phone down, and he turns, and he tells the ensemble, he tells his brothers and everybody else what the offer is, and they oh, gosh. But at Utah, if you don't win, you're gone. At BYU, you can have a job for life. You know, you could be here for life and everything else. And while they're doing this bartering, Kyle gets kind of ill. And he goes over to the sink and puts both hands on it. He's ready to throw up. He's really sick. And all of a sudden, the light flickers in the kitchen. And he turns around. And his mom says, you know who that was? (laughs) That was Fred. Freddie was gone by then. So he picks up the phone and calls Chris and takes the job. Yeah. Now, the, the story was told to me by the mother, who who embellishes like I embellish. I mean, she... she oh, Nancy? <laughs> yeah. she, she does a few things. So we were at dinner one night with my wife and and, uh, and Kyle and his wife. And so I asked, I asked Jamie, I said, I'm going to tell you a story. You tell me if it's true, because she was there. So we, I finished. She says, that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. Yeah, I always felt that he belonged at Utah. I yep. know the family and all, and they've all since long since made the switch. But I talked to him that night, too, and I really felt like he belonged at Utah. That's, that was where he would fit. That flicker made the final decision well, for him. May, I, I'm not going to question someone's inspiration. Divine intervention <laughs> came in, and Fred got to him. I just think it was a natural position well, for him. What a fantastic thing has happened since then. I mean, what a tremendous start and what has happened he has guided the program beautifully mm-hmm. yeah and uh, and they've taken that big step into the pac 12 and now he's getting athletes that are just absolutely amazing we're going to have tuttle you know back there that's the first i think four star first four star quarterback they've ever right. recruited oh yeah no question and, uh, and the wide receiver that he just signed to the six three guy with a long reach with yep. length Venus out of uh, arizona uh, those two together yeah, 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 yeah. So you see these programs. Uh, football, to me, is, is, is on the come. They've been competitive every year. And, and as a, someone who's followed this conference literally my whole adult life, it's hard. It's hard to be competitive. It's hard to win games, particularly in the South. There's really there's not too many cream puffs. Uh, so I forecast them being competitive uh, in football. Basketball is an interesting story because – 
since they've been in the conference, they did have one run to the Sweet 16. And I know Larry had to rebuild it from literally the bottom. But they had more success in the WAC Mountain West than they've had so far in the Pac-12. Oh, Certainly no in the WAC they did. No, but the, but the Utah program did go into, into a deep, right. deep, deep cellar there. So I give him a pass to two, three years to reload. Well, it was I a massive covered, rebuilding I job. covered Crisco when he was a high school player in Montana. And then he was uh, like All-American, you know, four years in a row at, right. at, oh, yeah. uh, at, uh, in college. And I went up and did stories on him. And uh, then I covered him when he was a Montana coach because I was doing the Weber stuff and they were playing. And uh-huh. he was just maniacal. I mean, he was hard-headed as can be. And a couple of times wouldn't even talk to me, uh, although we knew each other when he was playing the game because it was the game was it. But he was really a dictatorial-type uh, coach. He comes to Utah and takes over that first team, which is a bad team. Oh, yeah, it was awful. He changes his complete approach to the game. He becomes a, a, a pusher, a, trying to get their, their, their confidence up. He pats them on the back. He does everything. He completely changes his demeanor because of how he had to handle those kids because you couldn't criticize them. They were playing their hearts out. They just didn't have the great talent on the team. And then he himself has created a personality or a persona that is both of these, the pat on the back and the guy who has strict, strict dictums. Uh-huh. And his, his leaving players leaving his team is no different than what's been happening across the country. Players are changing back and forth all the time now because of the freedom to do so and because of the one and done and everything yeah, else. Yeah. But he is putting together, I mean, he's putting together a, 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 a team that, that will be representative in the, in the uh, Pac-12 and in the South. Uh, it's, we, we, ASU and Arizona have always had great basketball tradition, and Utah has too. And I don't think they've ever gone as low in the slump as Utah did. Not to that level, no. no after, well, Arizona after maybe in the early 70s but before Lute oh Olsen got there. Chris Koviak has really got it going, and he, has, he himself has matured as, as a head basketball coach. He has become someone who has the, the, the facile abilities to understand a game and to understand recruiting. But recruiting is the name of the game. It you get really two is. good ones. You you're, get two good ones, and you're, you're there. You're going to go, yeah. All right, well, hey, we appreciate you being with us this hour. I want to make a deal Look, with you. Look, it's been an honor. Oh, okay. An honor for me to be here because we can't go to bed Sunday nights. My wife will not allow me to go to bed until we see the PK and DJ show. And that is that is that ends it all for us, our television viewing on Sunday. Yeah. We can now go to bed. Yeah. And I'll tell you, he's a perfect foil for you. <laughs> he he's a perfect foil. He is, yeah. It's been quite a ride for me, too. I'm not ready to retire yet. Hopefully I've got several more years, but I'm very grateful to no, be able to have No, you've created a character that really works. Yeah, that's that's well said. <laughs> <laughs> but you make me a deal, Bill. When they have the 40-year reunion of the Final Four team, we're going to come back and do it again. Okay. <laughs> it's a deal. All right, that's Bill Marcroft, the legend, University of Utah. We thank him for spending this hour with us right here. Thanks a lot, Bill. We appreciate it. My pleasure.